0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Ian Kirkby. Ian is the founder and owner of Aspire Management Consultancy Limited, a firm which offers coaching, mentoring, training and consultancy services to help leaders, teams and organisations fulfil their potential. Ian, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks very much for the invitation,
0: Scott. It's a real pleasure having you join us, Ian. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So, Mm -hmm. if we take that word leader and just look at that in isolation for a moment to begin with, I'm interested to understand what that word means to you and how it resonates.
1: Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. Uh, I think there's often a lot of confusion between leadership and management and there's a degree of overlap. But at heart for me, a leader is somebody who can inspire and get others to follow him or her in pursuit of a goal, of a vision they've been able to communicate. That for me is the heart of leadership.
0: And you say there that, leadership and management are two different things but there is a bit of an overlap there Um, in my view I think there is real overlap in the sense of people management because a leader has to have good communication skills has to be able to Mm -hmm. relate to people those are incredibly important and no more so than the here and now especially where we're in a very difficult situation with COVID-19 it's an unprecedented crisis for pretty much everybody and leaders are really having to step up to the plate and keep the communication channels open from a distance and provide vital reassurance, aren't they, during this time? And that comes with its own set of pressures.
1: It does indeed. Uh, And you're absolutely right about leaders and managers both having to have relationship skills. Um, I think a key difference, though, is that managers by nature tend to look towards a steady state. Uh, Leaders tend to thrive on change and opportunities. They'll rise to the risk. So the the leader-manager combination is what's going to see us through this time, I think and that's where we should be focusing our efforts.
0: And with regards to how Aspire has had to adapt to meet the challenges of the current pandemic, what has been going on behind the scenes in that sense, Ian? Because I can imagine it's been an incredible challenge from that point of view.
1: It has indeed. It really validates, again, what we're saying about leadership. Um, Organisations, I think for some time now, really uh, have come down to the idea that leadership uh, isn't a nice to have, but it's vital to business success and never more so than in times of crisis. So in a crisis, that's when leadership really comes to the fore. Uh, We need people who can create a vision and communicate it, who have the awareness of what's happening around them. They can see the wider strategic patterns. They have the flexibility of style, and they can act decisively to make the most of opportunities and to minimize risks and threats.
0: And there's going to be some opportunity that comes out of this quite difficult and quite tragic time, isn't there, for mm-hmm. those businesses mm-hmm. that do make it through? There, ha- there are going to be some real positives to take, and also the fact that it's going to breed resilience in those businesses as well.
1: Resilience and agility, yeah, it, it is a terrible time for many. I don't want to downplay that at all. There are some real challenges and difficulties out there, uh, but there will be winners. Uh, and generally speaking, all things, all things being equal, the ones that are going to thrive rather than just survive in this time Uh, Those with those kind of skills I've just mentioned, that vision, that strategic thinking ability, if you like, the ability to relate to people, to get them to follow the vision, to set the goals clearly. Uh, A lot of the work I do with leaders and executive teams really comes down to looking at three things, and that's clarity, communications, and accountability. Getting those things right is fundamental to not just surviving, as I say, but thriving in times like this.
0: And it's interesting that you mentioned clarity, because when it comes to the government's leadership through this crisis, there's been a lot of debate about just how clear certain guidelines have actually been, especially mm. when it comes to COVID secure premises, both through the pandemic thus far and into the future as things begin to reopen. Um, in your yeah. case, um, are you satisfied that you've known throughout this current situation what's been expected of you and continue to do so in that respect?
1: To a point, and again, I think this is a mark of leadership, that we, we have to use our initiative. We have to make see the patterns when there's often conflicting or incomplete information. That's just a strategic uh, leadership skill. I do have a degree of sympathy with the government in this. It's an unprecedented situation, and they are providing leadership. Of course, we could always do with more, but I think it's incumbent on us as well to to take what we are given and to make the most of that, to interpret it reasonably and responsibly, and to act, to use our initiative, to act like leaders and to take our companies and organisations forward.
0: And given the impact that the pandemic has also had on working practices, what role do you think the office environment is going to play in the future of work, both in your organisation, Aspire, and in the wider world?
1: i think looking at the big picture, really. We can, we'd already seen a bit of a shift to home working. Um, office space was becoming increasingly expensive. With modern telecommunications, there's no reason why much work can't be done at home. Many employees want that as well. They like the, the homeworking sort of flexibility of lifestyle that that can offer. So I think we'll see that shift kind of um, embedded even further as companies realize, well, actually, some of the things we thought were essential for a central office, we can actually do remotely. Here at Aspire, we're doing remote coaching and workshops, and there is a place for those. There is still a need for physical meeting at times. There are some things that really can't be done as well virtually. Uh, be that training, workshops, or uh, day-to-day business work. But I think that uh, companies have seen that they can shift the balance a little bit and do more remotely than was previously thought.
0: It's about sort of showing leadership from a distance by communication, keeping the communication channels open in that sense, isn't it, at this uh, point in time? And there's been a renewed focus during this period on issues such as mental health and well-being as well. Mm. Um, How has that held up within the business during this time as well, Ian? Have you had to have maybe one or two quite difficult conversations when it comes to providing that reassurance? Or do you think you've been sort of quite inspired by how people have applied themselves?
1: It's been a bit variable, and I think that's one of the key things of leadership as well, it's the ability to flex style. When Mm. you're speaking to your remote workers and executives, we we tend to think that everybody likes what we like, is motivated by what we're motivated by, and that's just not the case. So understanding more about your people, what their strengths are, their areas for development, what they're strong in, where they are weak, where they're struggling, uh, that should inform our leadership style with them. And we want to take as many people with us as we can in this and to help them to be the best that they can be in these new situations. For some that will just simply be being very clear about the tasks they have and letting them run with it, but others may need more reassurance. So I think the good leader is very aware of where his whole, her team is at, where the individual members are at, and is able to flex style accordingly and relate to them better.
0: Comes back to that people management element, doesn't it, for sure. Um, One thing which the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly been is a real learning curve for some businesses and others that have not sort of taken the opportunity to innovate have essentially had their hand forced into doing so from this period. And there'll be some positives to come out of that. But... um, it's essentially that key word learning that I want to touch on just for a second. Do you think that it's possible, Ian, to actually develop into a good and effective leader without having the experience of suffering setbacks, maybe getting one or two things wrong and then using that as an opportunity to learn and improve?
1: I, I don't think it's possible to go through life without learning from setbacks and failures. None of us succeed in everything. Uh, The least painful lessons to learn from are, of course, others. So looking at case studies, what other companies and leaders have done that has worked and hasn't worked, and tailoring those is helpful. Uh, But really, we should always be looking to learn. Every company, when it does a major project, program, or whatever, should be looking at the end of it and throughout it, really. But what are the lessons that are being learned? How are we going to apply them? And really, for leaders, and especially strategic and senior leaders, it's vital that they're able to learn from their own strengths and, and mistakes as well, what they do well. And where they make mistakes and sometimes an external part can be really helpful there uh, we tend to kind of gloss over our failures sometimes it's just a natural human trait to do that mm. but if we're prepared to be honest with ourselves and to look uh, good and hard about the mistakes that we've made we could uh, we could grow enormously by doing that
0: and i think in a way almost being risk averse can sometimes take those learning curves away from us can't it sometimes we do have to take risks even if they are calculated
1: We do indeed, and that's a very key part of leadership. Again, you have to take risks, otherwise, you'll never really grow. Uh, But really, it's it's more than that. It's about fear. We're often afraid of what others will think of us. In a board meeting, fear is often quite uh, prevalent. You know, what will my colleagues think of this? Will I be attacked if I make that decision here and there? And this is where leadership is particularly important. You have to set the tone. You have to show that you can acknowledge your own mistakes where it's necessary, put them right, apologize to them, but move on decisively, Mm. emphasize the successes. encourage that openness and awareness amongst the board or other teams, and have a kind of a a blame-free culture. You don't tolerate incompetence, but where people have acted nobly and responsibly and made decisions that turned out perhaps not right because of unforeseen factors, and then applaud the behavior and learn from the mistakes and move on.
0: It's about empowering people, isn't it, to take on their own form of leadership and not being afraid to go beyond their comfort zone and try new things.
1: And that's becoming increasingly necessary with the complexity of life today, Mm -hmm. the flood of information, email traffic alone. You cannot have a command and control type structure in almost any industry. Now, there are still times when you have to have that direct leadership style, but normally we should be looking to empower our people, recruiting the right people with the right skills, training and developing them, and letting them lead in their own way as well.
0: And before we do um, sort of wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, and what I did want to touch on as well as the future and what that might bring um, as we move through the pandemic and into the new normal. So over the next year or so, maybe 12 to 18 months, what do you actually envision for yourself and for Aspire Management Consultancy and what do you really hope to achieve?
1: I still hope, not. my passion really is developing leaders and teams, especially senior ones, to not just survive, but to thrive in a rapidly changing world. Uh, I think however digital we are, we should be looking at being more digital, offering more things online. But remembering as well that there's a place for that personal touch where it's feasible, that the face-to-face meeting, the face-to-face workshops, they can be really helpful as well. And it's really about, as individuals and as teams and as organizations, becoming resilient and agile, but crucially finding the right balance between working hard and taking rests as well, not burning people out. We have to look at engagement, make people want to work with us. And that again is a great leadership skill, knowing when to press the capacity and knowing when to ease off and give people a break. I think that's really important.
0: And if, before we um, do wrap up, you were to give some advice to somebody who is maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role, what sort of advice would you give them?
1: I think, personally, I would say enjoy it. It's a great position to be in if you're in leadership and be responsible about it. Learn from others. Uh, You're not going to come across situations which in some way haven't been faced by others. So make sure that you're equipped, but also have the courage of your conviction. You've been chosen to be a leader for a reason. So have proper self-confidence and get yourself a coach, a mentor, or just an internal sounding body, somebody Mm -hmm. that you can trust who will be very open and honest with you. You'll find that will put you in very good stead and standing as you go ahead and keep developing. You'll never get to a place where you know it all. The better leader you are, the better team you'll run, and the better your business will do.
0: I think that's incredibly sound advice. And a piece of that advice does actually lead me onto a wonderful quote from Nelson Mandela. In fact, surround yourself with people who are better than you. It's some of the best advice you can give because mentors, teachers, they can often be some of the most influential leaders out there. Um, I've got to say, it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme uh, today. It's a shame we don't have uh, more time. Otherwise, we could discuss it long into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, but um, until we do um, touch base um, again, which I'm sure we will, I actually was going to say, I think it would be fantastic given the plans that Aspire Management Consultancy has for the future to actually catch up and have you back on the programme in the next year just to see how those plans are being borne out because it's one thing sort of speculating on future plans, especially amid all of this uncertainty, and it's something Mm. completely different entirely, sort of reflecting on what's gone on in the time between and really reviewing.
1: Thank you, Scott. I'd be delighted to do so. I'm quite happy to help in any way I can. Thank you.
0: I think that would be fantastic Ian not just for myself but also really insightful from a listener's perspective as well and do take care and do stay safe until we do speak again uh, because we're certainly not out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation yet even though things are hopefully on the up.
1: Indeed you too, thank you.
0: That was Ian Kirkby speaking, founder and owner of Aspire Management Consultancy Limited. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Since retiring from his playing days, Sir Andrew has become the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. But during his cricket career, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the ashes both at home and away in Australia. During his tenure, He also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Quite impressive. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished speaking with Sir Andrew. That is coming up next.
2: Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours, you know. have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs)
3: Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at Mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, Uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly (laughs) stick other than within those group of players.
2: And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury?
3: Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop, and... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I have only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could.
2: And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's honour board after your first appearance?
3: Yeah, uh, look, uh, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so It was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without
2: a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you?
3: Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive... Hmm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Milsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world, and uh, and o- obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need
2: that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life.
3: I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket it's, And itself. in
2: those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But... I, if i may i would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that but perhaps more importantly um as a team how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling
3: yeah well the the pressure was like nothing else that i experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the, I think it was the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible. (laughs) Like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it was just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's
2: such a key point. Because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual... Competition itself. What a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for for absolutely uh,
3: uh, everything you say. There is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we <laughs> were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. On, yes. <laughs> <It> only <laughs> happened for that one night, unfortunately.
2: But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge.
3: No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours. And I had to dig pretty deep to do that.
2: Now, Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, You looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, During your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role?
3: Um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like th- the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know the <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of england captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're going to have to dig pretty deep but i think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation, and it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations.
2: Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities; others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players? When players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than than a team.
3: The World Cup final was quite extraordinary.
2: I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I Yeah, well so was, <laughs> it was I, I actually <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Um now and you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you
3: so after she died in december uh 2018 uh, i came back and launched the foundation with two f- focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um but they're on the increase and it's women And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the,
2: the day at Lord's. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re- uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah. Well, a lot um, of them wear red trousers <laughs> like anyway, no, I think.
3: But um, actually, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in,
2: in Sydney and Australia. Well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, I very much hope sure we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um before we go as I'm conscious of the time we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket. Um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100 not without its critics though I should and I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the blast has clearly shown um,